Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. From the boardroom to the shop floor, good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. Hello, hello, hello uh, to everybody and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, your host, my name is Nimrod Mbele. Uh, what a pleasure to be in your midst once again. Um, I, I, before we actually move forward, let me just, you know, uh, thank Simon and Dominic Majola for Keep you guys updated, uh, informed, and pretty much entertained, I would imagine, over the past couple of hours. They will are back on your radio tomorrow. I do give you your, your audience. Um, tonight, as we proceed with the kind of speed that we ought to, you, you know, we all know that the country is literally bleeding, uh, thanks to COVID-19. But, you know, even before the COVID-19, the country has always been in a state of financial collapse. You know, um, you know, there have been a lot of debates and argument as to what led us to, to, to the state of financial distress that we found ourselves in. I think the, the, the dominant school of thought is that of what is often referred to, to the nine or ten years uh, under the administration of Jacob Zuma, wherein uh, the economy has been literally been looted. Uh, so we are told that the economy, uh, uh, you know, the state-owned enterprises were used as the uh, enterprises that line pockets for few individuals. And we've seen the results of how the economy collapsed. Um, and the COVID-19 just literally made things worse. Uh, but fortunately, we are in a state where, you know, South Africa is a very resilient country. The people are very resilient. And uh, the kind of leadership that we have now is pretty much different from the leadership that we've had during the past 10 years of Jacob Zuma. And the reality is that we obviously we have no choice but to turn the ship around. And, and tonight, in really getting a sense of what has been the latest you know, kind of uh, engagements with social partners, we are joined online by Martin Kinston, uh, who is the deputy, you know, uh, chairperson uh, for Business Unity South Africa. We have had this kind of conversation last year with Martin. I think it must have been in July, August, late last year, wherein Martin gave us a, a heads up in terms of what Business Unity South Africa did in, in, in trying to be responsive as part of a, a responsible social partner. They, if you might recall, released a paper or strategy on the 10th of July, which looked at how the economy could be revolved. And key to that particular strategy were about 12 points, priority initiatives, uh, which amongst others included, um, you know, in, uh, infrastructure investment, and the SOEs, land, and so on and so forth. So I think that in tonight's conversation with Martin, we just want to uh, take use that particular conversation we've done we've had last year uh, as a baseline, just to get a sense of where where South Africa finds itself in amidst COVID nineteen, which has literally obliterated any hopes, especially in the context of the new wave that we have seen. Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Martin. Uh, Martin, welcome and thank you very much once again to joining us and uh, we really appreciate your, your, your participation. Well, good evening, Nimrod. It's a pleasure to be with you in what is obviously a very difficult environment. Indeed, I would argue as difficult, if not more difficult than when we spoke last year. Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, just a quick recap. In our, in our conversation last year, you... Um, unveiled, um, you know, the strategy which was entitled A New Inclusive uh, Economic Future for South Africa, Delivering an Accelerated Re um, Recovery Strategy. Um, the, as I've indicated earlier, the document included 12 initiatives which uh, comprises several specific projects that mostly overlapped with 80 strategic integrated projects by the president, by the president. Um, can you personally just recap? I know one of the biggest items which we need to maybe get our teeth around, and I'm sure the listeners are quite keen to hear, the extent to which the needle has moved. Perhaps maybe, you know, uh, the infrastructure. 
which are presumably ought to have generated about 1.5 billion jobs, 1.5 million jobs uh, over a period of time um, since it was launched. Can you perhaps give us heads up in terms of where we are in relation to uh, all those 12 initiatives starting off with uh, in, in infrastructure investment? Well, maybe uh, Nimrod, I can take you uh, uh, through what happened subsequent to the release of our uh, economic recovery strategy, because we then presented it uh, to government and indeed to our social partners at NEDLAC, uh, Labour and uh, and Community. Uh, and then there were a series of engagements that took place uh, over the subsequent uh, three months uh, between those constituencies at the request of the president and what happened uh, over a series of very intense uh, engagements before uh, the end of the year, before November, uh, was to formulate, if you like, an integrated position uh, uh, between all of the partners, which resulted in the government uh, releasing, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, uh, their reconstruction and recovery strategy. Now, when they released their reconstruction and recovery strategy, that was a government document. Uh, and our view was that we needed to make sure that there was alignment between our priorities and theirs. And I think Labour and the community felt the same way. We then had a series of engagements. We formed a seven aside uh, between the parties. Uh, the seven aside from government uh, was actually led uh, by Minister Mamaluk of Kubai in Gubani, the Minister uh, of Tourism, but also the chair of the economic cluster within cabinet. Uh, we had Becky and Charlie Charlie, who was leading uh, for uh, for Labour, uh, myself and Kaskuvadia uh, for business. Uh, and what we hammered out over the next uh, uh, two months, of course, uh, was a position where we are now in collective agreement as to what those priorities are. And it's perhaps uh, to that that we must focus our attention. I'm pleased to tell you, Nimrod, that in fact, uh, almost without exception, uh, the various issues that we had identified as key priorities, some of which you referred to, including uh, infrastructure investment, uh, were incorporated into the plan. What we need to be aware of, of course, uh, is that two things have happened. One is uh, that, as you've pointed out, uh, COVID-19 has not left us behind at all. We're now in 2021. Indeed, the second wave is every bit as pernicious. I would say it's more devastating uh, than the first. We're not obviously uh, in a full lockdown at level five, but we're in adjusted level three. That's going to have very drastic ramifications uh, on the prospects in the short term, at least, for economic growth. And the second is uh, that as a consequence interalia of COVID-19 in massive capacity constraints, both financial and human resource constraints on all sides, but particularly in government, and the president has uh, emphasized that many times, uh, we're going to have to, and we agreed amongst the social partners uh, on the need to prioritize some of the programs, uh, some of which could have an immediate impact and some of which would obviously take time to get traction and then indeed uh, where we could start to see uh, the very job creation and contribution to economic uh, growth that you mentioned. Thank you very much for that headline, for, for that heads up, Martin. Um, it's quite interesting just to hear there has been a, a an alignment between what you have presented, which obviously found expression in the and the, the position that government took in terms of its own reconstruction and recovery strategy. I suppose um, from that point, we can all say that there is some line of, of agreement and alignment, which, which obviously serves as a, as a baseline that will ensure implementation of this mega project that you've spoken about. But one of the biggest issues that, that perhaps maybe the listener might want to get a sense from is that, you know, you in, in business have raised a several uh, thorny issues. Uh, for an example, the, the SOEs. Uh, what is the current position of state of the turnaround strategy around state-owned enterprises? One. And two, one of the biggest issues that business have raised, um, has to do, uh, with the, um, the, 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 the huge salary bill, um, of the public sector, which fundamentally undermine any prospect of investment because there are you know, a whole lot of consequences that are associated with huge salary bill, particularly when you're not investing. The other issue has to do with the the, the release of the spectrum. So perhaps maybe, you know, uh, systematically take us through um, where there's been, first you've agreed there's been a lot of integration and agreement, uh, but where is 
did you find each other in terms of the how you manage the salary bill, which is another cause for the economy? Uh, well, it's very interesting because although we agree many things in principle, uh, the devil is always in the detail. So in the context of the public sector wage bill, our position as business has been uh, very clear, uh, which that as taxpayers, uh, the country needs to see value for money and where there are savings to be extracted uh, and efficiencies to be obtained, uh, that's where we must focus our attention. Uh, it's a matter of great distress to us uh, that actually whilst the private sector has taken uh, enormous strain, and when I talk about the private sector, uh, I'll remind you all this is what we discussed the last time. We're not talking about businesses. We're talking about all business. In fact, all businesses, uh, for the most part, small and medium-sized, even micro uh, enterprises rather than large uh, companies. And business has taken uh, immense strain. Uh, many businesses and many executives in business have taken voluntary salary cuts, uh, have looked at job sharing in order to avoid the huge level of job losses that we've seen, uh, which already had started in the context uh, not only of the recession that we found ourselves in, uh, but the subsequent downgrades, all of that exacerbated uh, clearly by COVID-19. Two million jobs, uh, we think, lost that we've been able to register in the formal and the informal sector in 2020 alone. And no jobs lost in the public sector, including in state-owned enterprises. Indeed, strikes uh, by organized labor uh, in an attempt to get increases. We're not in a position uh, where we have the luxury of giving anybody increases. We all need, I think it's understood, to tighten our ba belts in extremely difficult times. So there's a standoff, and our position as business is no different to the position, of course, of government, and specifically that articulated uh, by the Minister of Finance. Uh, which is that they're not going to honor uh, the third year uh, of the contract that they entered into under these specific circumstances. Labor, I believe, has a clear understanding of the fact that we have limited uh, fiscal space. In fact, I would argue we have no uh, fiscal space. But nevertheless, there's a drive by public sector employees uh, to see not only uh, increased wages, uh, without uh, associated productivity, uh, but that they don't need to look at where they can secure efficiencies, both in the public sector generally and, of course, as you've mentioned, in state-owned enterprises, which no doubt you'll want to talk about uh, next. So there is no agreement at the moment between the social partners. Certainly there is between government uh, and there is between business, but it is business that is taking all the strain currently. When I say business, it's employees, it's individuals, uh, indeed, many of them uh, in the informal sector who've taken enormous strain. What, what would you attribute the, the failure for uh, public, in, uh, public sector in general to appreciate the, you know, the, the, the hardship that we all experience? Because when you read uh, newspaper articles and hear, listen to radio from time to time, you, you, you are quite shocked if not baffled, just to know that some of the unions are asking for uh, salary increases when exactly as you've pointed out, that private sector had to, you know, share jobs, had to share, had to literally, you know, tighten up the belt. Uh, and yet in public sector, you haven't seen that. What is actually missing in your understanding as to why the, the, the current the, the public sector authorities are not in sync with the reality on the ground? My own assessment of this is that they accept uh, that there is limited uh, fiscal space uh, with a caveat, which is that they don't believe uh, that the constraints on borrowing or indeed the constraints on printing money are real constraints. and We should go down that particular route. Now, the position of National Treasury, uh, and I would need to say business has been that we can't recklessly mortgage the future. Uh, by borrowing in the present, which is, of course, exactly what we'd have to do, uh, or alternatively, uh, uh, create scope for very significant uh, inflation by printing money. So that is where the difference lies. Uh, you'll have seen even yesterday uh, when the president uh, spoke to the nation, uh, he didn't announce uh, any further support. In fact, uh, we as business are saying there probably needs to be additional support in a specific set of circumstances. So it's not a question of failing to understand. Uh, the unions have a very strong relationship, as we know, through the alliance 
uh, with uh, with the ruling party. But more importantly, uh, they believe that their fealty uh, is to uh, members who are currently employed. We need to recognize that sooner or later the day of reckoning is going to arrive. I fear it is going to be sooner uh, rather than later because we can't stave off the time when there is no money uh, to support these institutions uh, or to support departments which are bloated and inefficient and need to be rendered fit for purpose. And as business, uh, we've made it clear to government that to the extent the skills and capabilities don't exist uh, within the public sector, and the president has been very clear uh, that that is the case, we're prepared to step up to the plate and offer uh, our experience and our resources to the extent that they're appropriately qualified, mindful, obviously, of any conflicts of interest that might exist. Uh, In the infrastructure program, specifically where you started off on this program, uh, we're now getting real traction. Uh, There's a program called TAMDEV, It's been spearheaded by ASISA, which is the Association of Savings Institutions of South Africa, where retired executives with requisite skills and capabilities, uh, including in project planning, are working extensively uh, with the Infrastructure and Investment Office uh, that's housed within the presidency, uh, working effectively as a public-private partnership to plan the rollout uh, of infrastructure on a responsible and sensible, and indeed, I have to say, economically viable basis. Well, thank you very much. Perhaps maybe one we still on this issue of really getting an alignment which is realistic and, pra- and practical based on the realities that we know. Um, I just want to go back to this issue of, of you know, principally um, you've indicated that government, labor, is on the same page. It's just in the in the level in the in the details on how you know the say for an example how we can manage uh, to arrest this the the huge public salary bill. And you've currently pointed out that the the kind of the trajectory which has been proposed by 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 Labour and other social partners is not is not sustainable. I mean we have known that Zimbabwe when at some point it was in the same route. What were they, what they did, they printed money and inflation became such a huge issue which unfortunately they were not being able to address. But here's the thing um from a political will point of view, because we know that you know government, particularly you know uh, the, the the president, he he's almost like a soloist because they are this contesting or competing uh, uh, in a fraction, to what extent do you think the the competition that sits within government realm, particularly at the leadership level, well, we, one we've got we've got Little House, one, but you also have um, you know uh, uh, you know uh, Pretoria. To what extent do you think these contestation and conflict um, hamstrung the ability of unison in terms of speaking with one voice to a point where there aren't any. A confused messaging that has been transmitted to the public? Well, there's no doubt uh, that there are differences of both opinion uh, and indeed of emphasis uh, within government. Uh, so you're talking about within the ANC itself, let alone uh, within cabinet and the alliance. And that discord uh, is very clear. So uh, we know about the uh, uh, issues pertaining to uh, the leadership of the ANC uh, and, and those pertaining to crime and corruption. And we, like indeed the ANC, uh, are of the view uh, that any instances must be uh, prosecuted without uh, fear or favour, and those who are accused must stand aside or stand down. That's obviously for the ANC uh, to determine, but it creates a sort of a perverse dynamic, if I can put it that way. Uh, by the same token, uh, there are issues within Cabinet. It's not a secret uh, that the Minister of Finance uh, was opposed uh, to putting any further capital uh, towards SAA, uh, contrary to the Minister of Public Enterprises and the final analysis uh, the ANC and Cabinet prevailed and the Minister of Finance conceded that in that particular case uh, he would have to fight uh, another day as opposed to on that particular battle. Even within the alliance, uh, there are uh, strong differences of opinion, some of them ideological, uh, some of them are just, I think, positional uh, uh, between uh, various unions themselves uh, as in between the unions, as well as between uh, the alliance uh, or unions, Kasatu uh, and the ANC. Now, I think that's extremely problematic in being able to accelerate uh, the implementation of an absolutely necessary uh, economic reform agenda. And you'll know that that was one of the issues that was not only at the top of our agenda, 
but in fact it's at the top of the agenda from the IMF, it's at the top of the agenda uh, from the rating agencies. Uh, and in our engagements with, uh, uh, with the president and indeed with the economic cluster of ministers, uh, we were able to tease out uh, as part and parcel of the MEDLAC agreement what were the key fundamental structural reforms that needed to be implemented, some of which uh, you've mentioned, such as you know, reforming state-owned enterprises and releasing spectrum. Unfortunately, there's many a slip, twixt, cup and lip, and we haven't seen the implementation uh, that is absolutely uh, required and on an urgent basis. All of these things are much more complex uh, in detail than they appear uh, superficially. Uh, we need to make sure that we capacitate the uh, work appropriately, uh, that we have transparency and visibility, which has been one of the hallmarks of our own approach, uh, which is that if we're going to build trust and confidence, we need to do so in a completely open manner. So unless and until such time as some of the uh, diverse opinions and positions that you refer to, Nimrod, are addressed, I fear that we're not going to make the progress either in the speed or in the quantum that is required to address our concerns, I'm sure your listeners' concerns. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the general feeling that we have had in this show and literally throughout the country is the fact that COVID-19 has given us as a country an opportunity to restart, to reboot, to think differently and act swiftly. And, and, and based on the kind of issues that are currently coming out, it's almost like we are schizophrenic. There's, there's a sense of, of, of acknowledgement. There's a need for us to move swiftly in terms of executing some of the prior agreement. But there's, in the same, in the same token, but we don't see the kind of will that is necessary, um, which COVID-19 has literally given us an opportunity to, to fast track and move with the pace so that we don't find ourselves in a situation where we are debating and the country suffers. Having said that, one of the arbitrals that sits, which you have uh, as, as a business have currently put it out, of which the listeners would want to know whether the needle has shifted negatively or is any stagnation. This has got to do with the, the state-owned enterprises. We know that this majority of them has been a liability, frankly speaking, because they have not made any returns other than just keeping jobs. We understand that that, part, that particular imperatives, but some of the biggest ones, for an example, ESCOM, got, you know, the, the state president came through sometime last year and announced a restructuring agenda around uh, ESCOM, for an example, in terms of it being broken down into three you know, independent units, transmission, generation, and, and, and so on and so forth. Where are we in relation to that? Has there been any progress because... It's important that listeners from time to time are reassured uh, of the progress that has been made because that is the only way in which one you can get confidence based on policy pronouncement made by government. So can take us through your take in terms of uh, you know the traction that we have seen in the transformation of the state-owned enterprises to a point which speaks to what the president announced sometimes last year. So, unfortunately, uh, I'm going to disappoint you and your listeners because although, again, the principles have been agreed, uh, progress is painfully slow. Uh, the president uh, appointed a presidential advisory uh, council on state-owned enterprises. It's uh, got, uh, I, I believe, uh, highly uh, regarded and respected individuals who serve on it. Uh, it's supported by the Department of Public Enterprises. But, unfortunately, uh, there isn't uh, the level of resource to support it, I believe, that is required if we're going to make progress quickly. And that's at a general macro level. Uh, we can't actually cope with all of the state-owned enterprises uh, that challenge us at the moment. We have to uh, pick some specific ones that are critical to the effective functioning of the economy, and we need to put the others either on hold or we need to deal with them in a different manner. And the most important and the most visible, of course, is ESCOM. We had negotiated, uh, in fact, uh, before we went into lockdown at NEDLAC, uh, a compact uh, between the social partners on ESCOM, comprehensive in terms of its restructuring, with a detailed implementation plan attached to it. Uh, the work was effectively suspended. It wasn't even commenced until uh, the end of the year 
when at the same time that we reached agreement on the uh, NEDLAC Economic Recovery Plan, as it's called, which is uh, not dissimilar, as I mentioned, uh, to the Reconstruction and Recovery Plan announced by the President, uh, has attached to it a detailed implementation plan, which requires all of the social partners, and in particular, but not only business, uh, to be able to ensure that we're fully involved in the restructuring of ESCOM. And I need to point out and emphasize that the restructuring of ESCOM is a mammoth task that is not going to take one or two years. It's probably going to take five, I would say, probably more like 10 years to complete. It doesn't mean we can't make progress along the way. And ESCOM and government can't do it on their own. They have to do it with all stakeholders if they're going to engender the necessary trust and confidence. Now, ESCOM is actually making, I believe, good progress under uh, the very fine leadership of Andre de Reta and his team. The board needs to be uh, reinforced. They've seen a number of uh, resignations over the past uh, 12 months or so. And indeed, Andre's team uh, needs to be reinforced. And once again, business has said that we're prepared to play a role if it's appropriate in that regard. And the restructuring, as you say, into generation, uh, transmission and distribution is on its way. Uh, but we can't do it if we don't have a complete overhaul of the entire uh, energy sector. There are some key elements, uh, such as resetting the tariff in a cost-reflective manner that doesn't undermine uh, the uh, economy completely. And obviously, the tariff increases uh, that we've seen uh, are a major challenge to the viability of a large number of businesses. If we look at other uh, critical SOEs, uh, such as Transnet, we know that the financial circumstances pertaining to Transnet are, in fact, much worse than they were a year or two ago. Uh, uh, Porsche uh, is now uh, seeking to deal with uh, those issues as the uh, new or perhaps not so new uh, chief executive. That board also needs to be reinforced to suffer the number uh, of resignations. Uh, Porsche has uh, completely overhauled her top uh, team, but they probably need to be recapitalized uh, in the same way uh, that ESCOM does, or I mean, as does ESCOM. SAA, SAA, you and I spoke about the last time that I appeared on your show. Uh, business's view is that SAA is not a viable or sustainable uh, enterprise, let alone in the current COVID-19 circumstances, and probably uh, should be responsibly uh, closed down if there were ways in which uh, the routes and the brand could be transferred to a new airline, uh, then obviously that's to be encouraged. But without, depending upon the fiscus, uh, we've seen 10.5 billion rand effectively appropriated to SAA. We as business uh, do not support that. And of course, and SAA is lying. Exactly. And SAA, of course, is not being restructured at the moment. It's the hands of the business rescue practitioners. So when we talk about the need to yeah. restructure SOEs, and I've just mentioned three, I mean, we could spend the whole of your show talking about them, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to, nor would your listeners want to listen to it. Uh, we need to just, prioritize ruthlessly can we just hold what second. we're going to do. Could you just hold a second? I'm told that we need to go to and uh, we need to take an ad break. Could and you just hold a second? Uh, we'll reconvene uh, in the next short while. Don't you uh, uh, get our thoughts around very interesting inputs that you make with I believe the listeners are thoroughly uh, enjoying and making, making sense. Let's take a break, break and we'll come and get a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back. It's amazing how time flies when you're really having, uh, you know, thought-provoking and interesting conversation. It is now 25 to 7, and I'm joined online by Martin Kingston from Busa. If you've just joined us, Martin is really giving us an insight in terms of the position paper which they have articulated sometime last year in terms of how the economy ought to be revolved. Um, the issue that uh, we were discussing before we went to the break was the, 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 the extent to which the state-owned enterprises have been transformed um, uh, or are being transformed so that they become asset as, as opposed to being a liability. One critical issue that Martin did emphasize or perhaps maybe raise is the fact that the transformation or restructuring process of state-owned enterprises is a moment's task. It will take time, it will take resources. However, there are bits and pieces of, of evidence which suggest that the needle is gradually uh, you know, moving on a positive note. Uh, one of the issues that I perhaps maybe Martin um, listeners from time to time will always raise is the inability of 
authorities to communicate succinctly and clearly in terms of progress made, um, particularly around, um, you know, ESCOM, for an example. We know that the, 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 you know, uh, power stations that have been, uh, constructed with Kusile and, and the like have come upstream, but we have not really fully gained the, the benefits of those particular, you know, power stations. How, one of the other issues that listeners have always wanted to know is the, the kind of uh, exorbitant costs that were associated with the constructions of those kinds of uh, power stations, which went completely and utterly way above the initial costing. And this, the sense is around there hasn't really much, much communication on why those kinds of glitches. And secondly, on a positive note, um, the extent to which the transformation agenda which government has put forward in terms of getting independent uh, uh, entities, be it in the form of uh, generation, in the form of transmission, and in the form of, 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 of distribution. Where are we? Martin was giving us a sense of that. Um, and we also reflected a little bit on, on Transnet, which is a very useful utility which uh, Porsche has taken over. And we got to say that there's a bit of uh, positive movement in terms of getting the right men and women to, to facilitate those kinds of leadership issues. Martin, over to you. Yes, so I actually think that there is progress taking place behind the scenes, but not as fast and as clearly uh, delineated as you uh, have said needs to be the case. Uh, we engender confidence by meeting uh, our commitments by setting them out clearly and crisply by reporting back and holding people accountable uh, if we don't actually achieve those objectives. That is not as uh, crisp or as clear uh, as it needs to be, neither with ESCOM uh, nor indeed with Transnet. They're both uh, hugely complex creatures. In the case of ESCOM, much more so because, uh, as we were saying before the break, uh, the reality is we need to restructure and overhaul uh, the entirety uh, of the energy sector. Uh, ESCOM needs to be restructured in the context of the electricity supply industry, the electricity supply industry in the broader context uh, of the energy sector, including you know, gas, for example, uh, including liquid fuels. Uh, that's a Herculean task. Uh, if you were to speak to Minister Mantash, uh, he would tell you that what he joined uh, in the Department of Minerals, uh, Resources and Energy was an energy department that, again, had been fundamentally depleted of skills, uh, capability, and expertise. That is where I believe, again, business can come uh, to the party. Uh, and what I would like to sort of assure your listeners is that, in my experience, we've got a higher level of cooperation uh, and engagement, both with government as well as with the other social partners of labor and community than, in my experience, has existed over the past uh, 25 Years, I think that that is to be commended. We've had to, in the context of COVID-19, build a relationship of uh, mutual trust uh, and support. A government, uh, I am absolutely convinced, acknowledges uh, that it can't address the challenges not only of COVID-19, but the challenges more broadly uh, uh, confronting the country uh, without harnessing the skills and capabilities of all social partners. But it takes longer than it needs to. And unfortunately, you know, we're in a dynamic and volatile set of circumstances uh, where many people are losing their jobs, uh, their livelihoods, uh, where the country is becoming poorer and not standing still. Uh, and for every step backwards that we take, it's going to probably take two uh, to recover. So, for example, last year, uh, we were saying that it would take three years to return uh, to the levels of real GDP and employment that existed pre-COVID-19. I think that the economists are going to have to revise that uh, position, given the fact that we're now in the second wave. I believe, unfortunately, that we may be in a third or a fourth wave uh, before uh, the vaccines are procured and rolled out to such an extent uh, that we start to gain uh, hum you know, adequate herd, or as the president put it yesterday, population immunity. And the consequence of that, of course, uh, Nimrod, is that the economy is going to underperform consistently until then. That doesn't mean that we can't take uh, significant decisions, as you said, uh, the release of spectrum. Uh, that is going to happen uh, theoretically before the 31st of March. Uh, for example, the restructuring of ESCOM, as you've already touched on, uh, uh, the rolling out of infrastructure on an agreed and viable basis, 
the broader reform of the power sector, uh, much of it associated with areas where state-owned enterprises do indeed uh, have a significant role to play or are currently heavily involved, but where the private sector can theoretically uh, play a more efficient role, either in partnership or indeed in substitution. Thank you very much for that insight, Martin. Uh, one of the issues that the listeners from time to time reflect on, uh, firstly, this whole position of the rating agencies. Uh, in a context of a country that is in a, in a, in a deficit fiscal-wise, uh, you, have concluded, you have agreed that we do not have any fiscal movement whatsoever, and compounded to that COVID-19 and a and host of other, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, challenging environment that made it very difficult for us to turn around. Um, the rating agencies often provide the kind of confidence uh, to a would-be investor um, in terms of crowding in investment. The fact that we have been now reduced to a junk status, um, which 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 further undermines any prospect of a turnaround. The kind of programming that I've been put forward be in the form of a uh, restructuring of a state-owned enterprises management or at least an attempt to manage the huge salary uh, bill um, and infrastructure programming that is on the table. To what extent do you think this bold, uh, this, this, this huge or mega project would somehow influence the rating agents to, to think differently? Uh, I tell you the reason only, the, the reason why, um, you know, the rating agents are so critical is that we are not in a position to generate revenue, and the, 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 we have borrowed substantially, and the, the cost of range go up every other time to a point where we are servicing that, you know, significantly. And when you service that at the huge quantum, which means any other infrastructure program or any program that is meant to, to create employment opportunities will be undermined. So, so the kind of plans that are in place, <laughs> supported by government and, of course, the private sector, to what extent do you think these initiatives um, are positive, positively enforcing the thinking of the rating agency? Do you think it's too late or it's, we're just flagging a dead horse here? No, we're not flagging a dead horse. Uh, but the rating agencies, of course, have already uh, downgraded uh, South Africa further into junk status. There's not just one level, as yeah. I'm sure you and your listeners know. And they are focused on really one thing and one thing alone. It's not that we say the right things. I think as a country, increasingly, uh, certainly government, uh, labor, business, and indeed civil society are speaking in a more aligned manner, although you correctly challenged me about that earlier on. They're focused on implementation. The president knows uh, that implementation is now the key uh, to uh, rebuilding confidence. And confidence, for me, is measured inter alia by how the rating agencies perceive South Africa. The proof of the pudding is most definitely in the eating. So we need to implement, and we need to implement ruthlessly uh, and aggressively. Uh, and the only way that we're going to do that is by harnessing all of the available resources, both financial, by mobilizing them across the public and the private sector in a responsible manner, uh, and human resources, the skills and experience that is needed is not just in the private sector, but the private sector can, I have no doubt, be of enormous uh, assistance. And unless and until that happens, we are no longer going to be given the benefit of the doubt by the rating agencies. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to drift uh, through uh, the uh, sub-investment grade uh, rankings and rather like reverting to uh, pre-COVID-19 levels of GDP and employment. So to recover uh, investment grade uh, rankings is going to be extremely challenging in a short period of time. And the consequence of that, as we discussed the last time we spoke, uh, is uh, less access to capital, both domestically and internationally, at a higher cost. And that becomes, of course, uh, a vicious circle with major <laughs> ramifications uh, for uh, the country's economic growth prospects, and specifically and particularly its ability to address uh, poverty, uh, unemployment and inequality, all of which have been exacerbated uh, very substantially by COVID-19. And if we don't deal with that, uh, then, of course, we're fueling the prospects of social instability 
which uh, even uh, more importantly uh, is a massive challenge uh, on the horizon unless we avert it uh, quickly. There you go. Thanks, thanks very much, Martin. If you have just joined us, we are joined online by Martin Kingston from Busa, giving us a, a download in terms of what progress have been made in the implementation of the Senate government. I uh, welcome your thoughts and views. Our well, SMS line is 34519. And of course, you uh, follow me, uh, you know, uh, tag us on, on our Twitter, which is at Mbele Nimrod. Uh, let's see how we can, you know, co-create solutions because uh, the idea of this particular show is not only just to raise concerns and issues. We as a collective, we also need to provide a thought leadership uh, than the life of Martin with kinds of insight and, and advice and guidance and support which they desperately need so that the, the work that they are currently undertaking, which is huge and, and very difficult and very complex, uh, so that it becomes lighter and lighter. So I want to implore our listeners from time to time, even just a, a message of, 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 you know, of support to the likes of Martin. Please, you know, because it's important. We all need to put shoulder to the wheel, uh, by virtue of acknowledging and appreciating the kind of challenges they are experiencing in terms of trying to get this country back on track. Um, they could do with your message of support. Like I said again, uh, our SMS line is 34519. The Twitter handle here is at Mel and Nimrod. As we proceed, Martin, one of the biggest challenges that we have talked about earlier, and there seems to be a bit of traction, I'm not sure how far you are better positioned to guide us here, is the whole issue of land reform, which, 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 if, and, 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 you know, and if done properly, uh, we are likely to enjoy the downstream beneficiation. Where are we in relation to this particular issue? Well, the, uh, the, the matter is being, of course, uh, progressed uh, through uh, Parliament. Uh, the concept of expropriation without compensation uh, is now uh, part of the fabric of a sort of regulatory reform agenda. Uh, we as business accept uh, that there needs to be land reform, but it needs to be done in a responsible affordable and equitable manner. Uh, and the president and indeed the ANC, when they talked about uh, land reform, uh, did have two bookmarks, you'll remember, uh, which was that we didn't in any shape, size or form uh, threaten uh, food security and that we didn't undermine uh, the economic uh, effectiveness uh, of, uh, of the country more broadly. Well, when you have those two bookends, it gives us a limited scope uh, for movement. The reality, of course, is uh, that there's much more that could have been done and should have been done uh, in terms of existing provisions uh, for land uh, reform. And again, once again, not only corruption, uh, but lack of resource uh, and lack of oversight and accountability has contributed to that problem. We need to recognize that unless and until such time as we have something that is, as I said, equitable, transparent and appropriate, uh, then the issue of land reform is, continue, is going to continue to be a highly popular and contentious issue. And it's certainly one of uh, the matters that is high on the economic reform agenda. Thank you very much for that insight. As we're wrapping up, Martin, um, one of the issues that you raised, and I completely agree with you, um, has to do with the capacity of state. We know for the fact that um, the capacity of state is very low or is very weak. And most of these beautiful programs that we have spoken about uh, can only be executed as subject to availability of competent individuals, technical skills and resources. Um, and you did allude to the fact that business is chipping in by providing some kind of resource by, you know, supporting all this kind of new initiative. But my thinking is that I'm not sure whether it has been approached holistically, you know, uh, by looking at the various strategic the government department, as well as municipalities. Um, the latter, for example, there is of the 254 municipalities, if, if, I, if my memory serves me well, almost 80% of those were in financial distress, all were under an administration, all were not delivering whatsoever. So to what extent, because that lies in the capacity of state to deliver, because the municipalities, they have a huge role to play in uplifting, because they have abundance of resources at their disposal, but because you don't have the right kind of leadership at that level, 
that could translate the kind of assets which municipalities have that would benefit local uh, you know, folks, particularly small businesses. So the question is, the kind of capacity programs that you're thinking of, my view is that it, it appears as if it's, 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 it's ad hoc and it's not coherent, it's not, it's not consistent across the board. Can you just take us through the kind of thinking around building the capacity of state or supporting the capacity of state so that all these big programs that you, we, we've spoken about can actually be implemented because the biggest challenge has been the implementation. And at the heart of implementation has been the whole point of technical capacity and capabilities of men and women who are driving those kind of initiatives. Yes, of course, you're absolutely correct. Uh, in the final analysis, it is government that must uh, uh, reform and restructure uh, the state, and some progress has been made uh, in combining uh, and consolidating uh, departments. Uh, but there needs to be a holistic view, which I believe is the point uh, that you're making. And as business, we have offered to government, from the president down, uh, the ability to harness uh, skills and capabilities, but we can't do it in a vacuum. Uh, we need to ensure uh, that we do so in a manner that uh, uh, is supplementary to, complementary to uh, the work that is already being done uh, in the public sector. If I can just take a minute, because I know that your listeners will be interested in this, uh, to talk about the work that we're doing in this regard with respect to vaccine uh, procurement. It's obviously the biggest single uh, challenge and uh, opportunity to address COVID-19 that we have as a country. Uh, the government has created uh, structures, uh, primarily driven by the National Department of Health, to deal with everything from the acquisition strategy of the vaccine through to the logistics to the point of sale administration when people are actually inoculated and all the administration that goes uh, alongside that. Uh, we have engaged with uh, the president and his, uh, his colleagues, and we have subsequent there too, uh, only this week in fact, agreed to roll out uh, effectively uh, mirror image uh, structures, not only so that we can coordinate the approach of business, because business is also fragmented and not as well coordinated sometimes as it could be, about to work in a completely uh, joined up manner, if I can put it that way, uh, with the state. Now, those types of initiatives uh, do create precedent, uh, which are very helpful and valuable uh, for broader levels of cooperation and collaboration, not just uh, in theory, but in practice, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to make uh, real progress and to be able to reinforce some of those areas that are weak uh, within the state, but also ensure that the country as a whole acts in solidarity uh, to ensure that we can actually uh, head off uh, economic disaster, but rather achieve our economic potential. Thank you very much for that, for, for that insight, and thanks for bringing that particular issue, because I think if harnessed properly, the whole uh, collaboration and partnership insofar as, you know, management of COVID-19 or the dis distribution of vaccines could be used as one element which suggests how, uh, you know, the state could be, you know, supported by business and civil society organization to move with speed so that we are able to address, uh, you know, or arrest the, 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 the implications of the pandemic. But so far, based, based on what you have articulated, what has been the reception uh, on the social partners, unions as well as civil society organizations, based on the very proposition that you have put forward as business? Yeah, I, I, for the most part, uh, Nimrod, extremely positive. Uh, the key to this is having uh, both an inclusive approach uh, and total transparency and visibility of the work that everybody is doing. Uh, now, the challenge, uh, there's no challenge with transparency and visibility because it leads to uh, clearly delineated lines of responsibility and associated accountability. But inclusivity takes time uh, and it has uh, the challenge of solving sometimes the lowest cost denominator. Obviously, uh, we can't possibly afford that under the current circumstances. So we need to ensure that we have subject matter experts. If there are subject matter experts uh, that come from labor or community, we welcome them. Uh, if there are people, including from business or government, uh, who simply clog up the works, uh, then that's not something that we would encourage uh, or, or support. And we're going to have to find uh, ways in which we can work uh, smarter and better. There's no doubt that there's immense skill, uh, experience and capability uh, within labor, uh, within civil society, uh, that is uh, actually additive 
uh, and in some cases uh, much better uh, than the skills and capabilities that exist, certainly in business and perhaps even in government. We need to make sure that we play to everybody's strengths. And by the way, everybody is not just those who are active in business. It's those who may have been in business previously and still have some energy and able to contribute uh, their time and expertise now. We've certainly harnessed some of those skills uh, in the Business for South Africa platform that we established last year to deal with the pandemic. I would appeal to you and your uh, listeners that to the extent that there are those skills out there, uh, we should harness them uh, equally. Thank you very much, Martin, for, for that insight, which I think the listeners will certainly appreciate. And I did like the point of acknowledging that some of the skills, competencies, and experience in civil society organization and, and labor movement um, is there and, and just needs to be, and earth needs to be exposed, which means more, there's a more, there's a need for a robust communication uh, strategy on the side of business and as well as government to bring in. Um, these kinds of technical support that sits um, in labor movement, civil society, civil society organization, and so on and so forth, because um, that that is the only way in which the trust and, and collaboration spirit, which we are well known for, can, can bear fruit in terms of moving things with speed. Because um, so far, I mean, I know the whole issue of distribution of, uh, uh, you know, COVID-19 vaccine is going to be very controversial, uh, you know, hot on the heels of the PPEs. So, so there's so many things that you've learned from that, of which uh, government and labor, as well as other relevant system, civil, civil society organization, would want to move away from um, so that we spark confidence in, in our communities. Your take on that? I fully agree. It's the only way that we're going to be able to uh, achieve our objectives. We need to harness all of those skills and capabilities. By the way, one of the challenges that we have, and we solved it actually very quickly in Business South Africa, uh, is to ensure that we can project manage this uh, in an efficient and an effective manner. Uh, we uh, very early on in the piece recognized that we needed to harness a project management capability. Uh, we approached the management consulting firms, uh, the big four accounting firms, and uh, they were assembled very quickly. And the subject matter experts from wheresoever they came were able to focus uh, on their uh, own competencies, uh, and we were then able to integrate that and ensure that there was appropriate levels of uh, communication and decision-making and governance, which everybody was comfortable with. I mention that because exactly the same applies to the question that you asked. If we're going to harness the competencies, skills and capabilities of the social partners, uh, we can't do it in a vacuum. We need to put in place appropriate governance structures and appropriate infrastructural, by which I mean uh, project management support. Thank you very much, much. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Once again, thank you very much for your insight, your inputs. I certainly benefited a lot, and the listeners out there um, are probably inspired, you know, just to get a sense that there is real movement um, in, in the South African economy. We have men and women like yourself who are seriously taking the baton forward and who are, uh, you know, determined to turn around. Once again, thank you very much. We applaud you as a country. We applaud you as the station. Thank you so much and uh, wishing everybody a good and safe evening. Beyond Governance was brought to you by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. 